Hello and welcome to the uh, Socialist Party podcast. Here with me today is Mick Barry TD. Uh, Mick Barry TD is uh, a representative from Cork North Central and a Socialist Party organiser of many, many years. Also sitting with me today is Katja Hanke, a full-time organiser for the Socialist Party uh, of a similar amount of time as Mick. But, uh, and finally, I am Shane. I'm an activist with the Socialist Party. I'm a trade union rep and an activist with force the trade union and today uh, on this first podcast organized by the socialist party we are going to be discussing the housing crisis uh, thoroughly uh, in irish society today one of the most um, pressing issues obvious issues is the housing crisis it affects more and more strata or more and more people in society and um, we're seeing like a new movement emerge or a series of actions uh, following the victor- following the victorious repeal referendum. We're seeing an emboldening of young people, people getting active on housing, and we think that it's very timely to be having this discussion on it. And how does the issue of the housing crisis relate, or how does it act as a symptom of global capitalism in decay? So I think, firstly, maybe we can take Mick Barry in. Uh, Mick, how are you? Not too bad, Shane. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm finding my feet a little bit with this. So apologies in advance for every slight stumble and slur and use of the word like. So the housing crisis, to place it, let's maybe pose it in an international context first. We live in a global capitalist system. And this housing crisis is not just isolated to Ireland, but is spreading across the globe. So do you want to come in and maybe make some observations or points about that? Well, I think it's good that you've um, put it in uh, that kind of context, in an international context. Uh, you won't fully understand the housing crisis in Ireland uh, unless you do that. So capitalism sees uh, housing as commodity something to be bought and sold, something to make profit from. It's nothing to do with having a right of a roof over your head or anything like that. That's always been the case, but particularly since the Berlin Wall came down and you're into the era of neoliberal capitalism, red in tooth and claw, uh, we see this in a really dramatic way. Uh, for example, I understand that in Hong Kong at the moment, uh, a, 60, a 60 square metre flat now costs 20 times the annual income of someone working in the services sector there. In London, it's 16 times. Okay. Um, there was a report that the United Nations, hardly a, a revolutionary organisation, uh, last year produced, uh, where they said that housing and urban real estate have become the commodity of choice for corporate finance, a safety deposit box for the wealthy, a repository of capital and excess liquidity. Okay, So you've got about 163 trillion US dollars invested in residential real estate worldwide now. That's more than double the gross domestic product, all the wealth produced in the entire world in a given year, multiplied by two. Okay, mm-hmm. So um, how does that manifest itself, uh, if you like? Well, there's been huge price increases over the last six or seven years. Uh, it's been more than 50% in some cities like Stockholm uh, and Vancouver, for example. Um, it's made a fortune for a few. And it's put housing beyond the reach of the many. All right. One of the things that flows from that is a massive increase in homelessness. Mm-hmm. In Germany, it's gone up by more than 150%. In England, it's gone up by more than 150%. Uh, in Ireland, uh, it's increased, uh, where do I have it now? 145% uh, in three years between 2014 and 2017. Okay? Um, so what's happening in this country is not separate and apart from what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, capitalism is more international than it's ever been before. Uh, and, um, you know, it's there's a chain of misery across the world. Uh, housing is a huge part of that. And it's to do with the commodification of housing, seeing it as 
something to make a profit from rather than something which is a human right. Okay. And regarding the commodification of housing, I think after um, the crises in the early 70s, um, under Thatcher and under Reagan, there was way more of a drive towards the commodification of housing. And I think like that ideological and political attack on housing um, has sort of changed the way that people look at housing. Like for example, in the 70s or in the 60s, there was more of an expe- expectation of housing being accessible as just a provision that it you could access it through the council or through the various local authorities. So maybe is there some points that you'd like to make about that? Or Well, you talk about the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. In the 60s and 70s, uh, you would pay a mortgage on a house with one wage. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you would really, really struggle to pay a mortgage on a house with two wages, even two quite decent wages uh, these days. So that's a practical example of how things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge credit industry mm-hmm. uh, as people attempt uh, to purchase a house. Um, the last world economic crash, why did it come about? I mean, a key factor uh, at the heart of it, set quite central to it, was the housing bubble uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Some experts reckon that could be the cause of the next financial crash and, and downturn Uh, in capitalism uh, uh, internationally. And of course, to bring it home to Ireland, we saw the way in which uh, Fianna Fáil um, catered for the needs of the bankers, catered for the needs of the big developers, uh, allowed this huge housing bubble blow up in Ireland. uh, And that was central to the crash and the austerity that followed it uh, in this country. So, you know, Malcolm X, uh, didn't he say you can't have capitalism without racism? Um, in, in today's world, um, uh, housing in a capitalist society, uh, you can't have housing uh, uh, in a capitalist society without this uh, uh, exploitation and this, um, you know, benefit for the many or benefit for the few at the expense of the many. It's a central feature. Okay, um, maybe we can touch upon some points in relation to housing in the last few years, um, housing in the age of austerity, but also housing in the so-called age of recovery. Um, now, there's a generation precarious um, emerging that have to contend with skyrocketing exorbitant rents. Um, Katja, do you want to come in maybe with some observations about this or like what's the lived experience of uh, more and more people? Yeah, I think that's actually a very relevant point because what the government, when they talk about the housing crisis, try to do is to very much focus on those who are very much at the sharp end of it. People who are officially counted as homeless. But the reality of the housing crisis in Ireland is now that there is indeed a whole generation just locked out. Um, in the last census, 460,000 working young people reported that they were stuck living at home, just simply unable to enter even the rental market. Um, only the top 15% of income earners can now even think of possibly getting a mortgage. Mm-hmm. So there's just a huge generation of, of people stuck in the rental market that offers no uh, security, uh, ongoing increases in rent and so on. And actually, there was a task report um, published in um, April 2017 that is mainly focusing on, on, on precarious work and looking at the, the effects of precarious work. But one of the points it makes is that after the crash in two, 2008, there was nearly a shock doctrine implemented in, the, in terms of undermining working conditions, undermining pay, forcing people into part-time jobs, uh, into uh, you know um, bounded hour uh, contracts and into temporary contracts. Mm-hmm. But that, that is very closely linked down by a precariousness in housing developing for people where they have just no security in terms of their living conditions and so on and so forth. And much broader effects of people, on people of that, you know, in terms of their mental health, their physical health and so on, you know, uh, family planning, name it. That mm-hmm. whole idea of just not being able to plan your own life, leave alone, you know, the life of uh, any family you may want to uh, to have or, uh, and, and so on, you know. And I think that issue of, of how housing has now become something that is just out of reach for a new generation is very, very radicalizing for people because, you know, everybody would see having a home as quite a fundamental 
basic right. Mm -hmm. And we're actually currently living in a system that isn't even to, uh, able to provide that for people. You know? mm -hmm. The housing crisis is, is also disproportionately affecting women's sing uh, single mothers. I know Rosa have been uh, researching this and doing work on this. Uh, Katja, uh, you're a Rosa member. Uh, would you like to come in on this a little bit? women do find themselves at the sharp edge of, of this crisis. Um, it's also economically the case that more women are more likely to be in part-time employment and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so all the points I made earlier that in general affect a new generation, young women find themselves at the sharp edge of that. Um, the specific point you're making is also linked to austerity, mm -hmm. to the you know scandalous cuts that were made in already a very, very limited budget for refuges uh, and so on. Mm -hmm complete inadequate response by the state to uh, to the issue of, of, of domestic violence on every on every level uh, and therefore people finding themselves in living situations that they don't want to find themselves in mm -hmm. uh, being forced to live together with someone who they're no longer in a relationship with and so on and just the huge pressures that that uh, puts on people you know yeah and I think these points all tie together you know I mean like Shane you talked there about um, uh, mental health and you're talking about a uh, situation facing women. Mm -hmm. um, let, let's look at it this way. 50% uh, of all single parents in this country are renters, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's now nearly a million renters uh, in the state, 800,000. So um, if you are a renter in the Republic of Ireland, uh, you have precarity, mm -hmm. um, um, it's as precarious as you can get uh, because a landlord has a legal right that's been given to him by Fianna Fáil and Fianna led governments to evict uh, on grounds of substantial refurbishment uh, has the right to evict uh, in order to get a family member into the house mm -hmm. uh, be selling the house uh, if there are rent arrears and so on so a notice to quit can arrive at any time mm -hmm. alright uh, if you get a notice to quit and you're forced to move it affects your job uh, it affects your childcare it affects your social life mm -hmm. it affects uh, the education of your kids um, you know so living in conditions of precarity where a notice to quit can arrive any day is not good for peace of mind mm -hmm. it's not good for mental health alright um, and th this is a real example of what working class people are uh, uh, dealing with. And at the same time as this is going on, I think this is an important point to draw out. Um, there's an American capitalist politician who once said, never waste a good crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and the student accommodation providers, uh, the landlords, the speculators, uh, are following that advice to the letter of the law. Right? They are really milking the situation. Uh, you look at that situation there of, of private rented accommodation and landlords. Central Statistics Office says that in 2015, and that was a few years ago when rents were lower, right? they made €2 billion Euro in pure profit in just one year. Mm -hmm. An incredible figure, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you look at the uh, student accommodation providers. Big multinational corporations are really moving in here now on the student accommodation front. Companies like Heinz, companies like uh, Global Student Accommodation, who are based in Dubai. Heinz are the fourth biggest property company in the world. There's a new student accommodation block in the Liberties. I think it's called the Mill or the Mills. Yes. There's 400 beds in there. Uh, uh, a bed in a uh, ensuite uh, apartment for one person. It's 245 euro. No, 249 euro. Now think about that. Per okay. week. Per week. Per week. Okay. Yeah. So think about that. If you have 400 people paying 249 euro, mm -hmm. and that's the lowest rent, that is 100,000 euro a week in a rent take, and it's more than 5 million euro in a year. Yeah. You know? And like, these massive uh, developers, um, they have, like, they develop these carnivals as well because in these massive apartment blocks, student apartment blocks that are inaccessible to most working class kids and students, well, like they have like um, 
bowling alleys and uh, swimming pools and so on and it's not what people fundamentally need but they're creating these palaces that are inaccessible for working class exactly. people you know I mean and that's precisely the point mm-hmm. is they don't give a damn about working class young people they don't even give a damn about the majority of middle class young people mm-hmm. it's the more affluent sections of the middle class and the wealthy in our society and the international students who've got the big money as well, yeah. right? That's the market that they're interested in and that's that's what, that's what capitalism is, is all about. Uh, uh, yeah, I have just a few more points uh, to develop here. So uh, in relation to Irish capitalism, the political elite seem to either be um, landlords themselves or lackeys for landlords. So maybe we could tease this out. Um, just, I think... Fianna Fáil, the percentage of Fianna Fáil is well, TDs that are landlords. Mick, do you know, know it offhand? Or? Yeah, a third of Fianna Fáil TDs are landlords, right? Okay. So when I sit down in the doll and I look across at the Fianna Gael benches mm-hmm. and I see five of them, mm-hmm. well, by the law of averages, two of them are landlords. Mm-hmm. And I look over to my left at Fianna Fáil and I see three of them, by the law of average, one of them is a landlord. Yep. It's important to make the point that it's, it's not just because they are landlords. Yes. It's, it's because... Their parties are capitalist parties. Their ideology is the ideology of the market. Mm -hmm. They worship it. They're tied to the market by a thousand strings. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they are landlords themselves, and that's their, if you want, for want of a better term, their class vantage point in society, that copper fastens and reinforces that point of view. I also think the foundation of that is that you've had a feeble Irish capitalism in all its history, that Irish capitalism has never developed a sufficient industrial base. And the point you made about the market is that Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, they worship the market, but they also rely, because their economic practice relies on trying to get multinational uh, and vulture investment from abroad to come in. And because there has been such mass commodification of housing, like they are facilitators for global capitalists yeah. to come in and exploit uh, look this at the, crisis. Look at, look at the corporate landlords now. Look at the likes of IRS REIT. Yes. Katya knows a bit about that. She knows more about them than I do. So, Yeah, IRS REIT is an absolute uh, case in point of the biggest landlord in Dublin owns over 2,500 apartments um, we raised this issue so um, I think actually Mick raised this issue in the Dáil a few weeks ago and on the back of it we got contacted by um, people who were renting from them in uh, Sandyford who were just overnight presented with a 20% rent increase on apartments that were already over 2 grand a month right you're talking about people who just you know about corporations who don't care <laughs> that's, that's the, the only polite way to say there's you know more explicit words that you could use around this you know um, and what they do is like they bought off NAMA mm-hmm. at extremely reduced prices they more than doubled how much their property portfolio as they see it is worth um, they didn't pay any uh, capital gains tax on it they got an exemption you know and th- this is where you see that interaction between the government and these kind of, of uh, vulture funds moving in and how they are actually really actively facilitating this kind of um, commodification of, 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 of the market and, 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 and these uh, international vulture funds giving a huge leg up uh, to, to make these type of investments in Ireland, you know. But they are the main drivers of rent increases mm-hmm. in Dublin because they have such a big share of the, of, 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 the, of the rented property. They can nearly set the price, you know, and they've been doing that for a whole period of time. They don't pay tax on the income they make out of the rent mm-hmm. they get and they don't pay uh, uh, any tax on, on the actual properties they have it's actually quite incredible right <laughs> you know and they exploit people to a point that is just unbelievable you know and that's where these things are going on they're being named and shamed and you get absolutely no response from a government who is just cap in hand to these people you know mm-hmm. if you raise the idea of rent controls you just are met with a blank stare. If you if you raise the idea of a rent reduction, of saying actually, you know, rent controls are no longer enough because rents are so extremely high right now, you're just leaving people in a permanent crisis. You know, even if you keep rents at the level they are today, you need to go back to the rents the way they what they were around 2010, 2011, really, to make it any anyway vaguely affordable for working class people to to rent you know and 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 still live you know there's some really uh, interesting facts uh, and horrific facts actually about people having to skimp on on food on very basic items to pay the rent every month you know this point i'd just like to come in on there in relation to homelessness 
Um, Katya made the point earlier that the media wants you to think that the housing crisis equals 10,000 people on the on the housing list, whereas in reality, I mean, Father Peter McVerdy said that there's half a million people who suffer distress on a daily basis mm-hmm. in this country now because of the housing crisis. It's much broader than homelessness. It's the locked out generation. It's, it's the young workers who are, um, you know, uh, in rented accommodation but putting half of their income towards rent mm-hmm. and skimping on food and heating. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that, um, you know, the people at the sharpest end of the housing crisis uh, are the homeless people. Um, the Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, uh, has moved might and main to try and fiddle the housing figures. He's personally instructed that 1,600 people be taken off the list. Mm-hmm. That's to keep, to keep the number below 10,000, which mm-hmm. he sees as a politically sensitive uh, figure. But the reality is that the numbers of people homeless in this country are not a little bit above 10,000. It's double that, it's treble that, is it more than that? For example, they don't count people who are couch surfing mm-hmm. as in the in the in the homelessness statistics uh, in this uh, country. I would say the reality of the situation is that there's not ten thousand, there's tens of thousands of people homeless. And an interesting point is, uh, I was talking to the uh, housing analyst Mel Reynolds, mm-hmm. um, and I asked him had the housing crisis peaked. And he said, in his opinion, it hasn't peaked. And it may not peak for another couple of years yet. And one thing that he's watching very carefully is the vulture funds, who probably control more than 25,000 distressed mortgages now, are they going to go down the road that they went down in Spain and go for a massive wave of repossessions and evictions? Um, It's not guaranteed that they will. They might have other options uh, to, to get their pound of flesh. But they may do next year, the year after, and the year after that. So... It's quite possible that under this government and under this system that uh, we haven't seen the peak of the housing crisis yet mm-hmm. and there's there's worse to come unless a movement is built to combat it and to combat them. Mm-hmm. And just following on from what you said, in that the crisis hasn't reached its peak yet, you know, the last few winters more and more, like as time goes on, you see Dublin and just Ireland generally becoming more Dickensian and Victorian in just the sheer vivid like straight homelessness but also the return of slum tenement conditions you know that like you have an emergence of uh, strong landlords but not only landlords slumlords Um, I think uh, one interesting example a lot of people listening to this are probably familiar with it already but uh, the Summerhill Parade where Take Back the City or the nucleus of Take Back the City uh, centred around initially that the conditions there were uh, you had an old Georgian style house three or four storeys and you had maybe six or seven rooms in the house and what you had was uh, Brazilian migrants uh, heavily exploited by this landlord in that you'd have um, four, uh, four to six people in a room, adults in bunk beds, paying four hundred to five hundred euro a month, and that just reads <laughs> like you know an excerpt of a Charles Dickens novel. You know, that conditions in housing have deteriorated so much that the norms and people's expectations of housing have just sharply decreased since austerity has come in. And I think that you know they speak of a recovery. But working class people and young people have paid for the crisis, they've paid for austerity, and now they are paying for the recovery. And maybe um, maybe now we can touch upon um, just the social movements that are, uh, or the actions that indicate uh, the developing of a movement on housing over the last few months, because there's a lot of food for, for thought there. Um, so... Um, Katja, uh, do you want to come in and maybe make some observations? I just want to make one point about about all this, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, the point you make about Dublin looking more Dickensian is, is true. Mm-hmm. But I think actually what we've s- spoken about for the last number of minutes is, is the reality of, yes, homelessness is more in your face year by year mm-hmm. by year. But also that I think if you look who is affected by this now, it's literally every working class family is affected by this but because what we've described basically is when you're 18 you try to go to college you're going to be struggling to find any type of accommodation that isn't completely wildly out of reach 
you know, you are immediately thrown into an extremely precarious condition in terms of finding accommodation anywhere near your college. And many students are left with in incredibly long commutes mm -hmm. to get up and down to college that are immediately affecting their studies and so on. Say you get through that, you become a young worker. You're going to be stuck at home for years, <laughs> even though you're working and really, you know, should be starting off your own life and so on. You're still stuck at home. You might eventually be lucky enough to rent a home, but that means you're in extremely precarious conditions. Mm -hmm. You're probably still sharing with other people mm -hmm. and you're every year waiting with trepidation if there's a, if there's a letter going to arrive that tells you that you might get a 20% rent increase or something completely insane like that, you know? Say even you're lucky and you've bought a home uh, a number of years ago, you're working in your 40s or so. You're crippled by a mortgage for a house that was hugely overpriced. And if you're an older worker again in your 50s or 60s, you're desperately hoping that your 30-year-old will eventually move out of your house, you know? Yeah. So literally every working class family from, you know, from young people bearing the brunt, yes, but to their parents, to the next generation up, are affected by this in, in, in terms of their, their own life, their lived experience, their, you know, their quality of life, you know? And I think that gives a huge basis for, for, for any kind of uni, uni, unified action of the working class. And it actually places a huge responsibility on the trade union movement as the key organizers of working class people at the mm -hmm. end of the day as the biggest civic, civic organizations yeah. in, in Ireland I think today. This is, I think this is important. Um, I mean, we see the um, a new um, housing protest movement uh, beginning to emerge, uh, and there's been an up an upping of the ante mm -hmm. in the last couple of uh, months. Um, I think the the two high points, um, the take back the city protests. I think the uh, boldness of the actions taking over the vacant premises uh, and then the defiance of the courts the court injunctions mm -hmm. and the refusal to be cowed when the private security thugs uh, kitted out in ski masks protected by Gardaí and Balaclavas attempted to use uh, violent tactics uh, brute force to throw young people out of a building mm -hmm. Um, the fact that the following week, you know, 50 times as many people came back, marched through the main streets of the capital city uh, and took over O'Connell Bridge. I think that's inspiring mm -hmm. and has inspired many. And the Raise the Roof protest on October the 3rd when we had 10,000 people outside the, the Dáil. Uh, what really struck me there was the preponderance of... Uh, young people, particularly student youth. Mm -hmm. I think the water charges campaign has played its part in showing that working class people can push back and force a right wing government to retreat. And I think the marriage equality and um, repeal campaigns, the fight for abortion rights and the success that was achieved there uh, is bound to be encouraging young people uh, to get active uh, and that you can make a difference. I know that you've been involved in the Take Back the City. Mm -hmm. Uh, occupations, Shane. Um, I've been. I haven't really been involved. I went up one day and knocked on the door, and a chap came out and said that they were very hungry. And I went around to the shops and bought them a whole lot of cornflakes and loaves of bread and a few uh, apple pies. But that's been my main involvement so far. So you've been more of a central figure, Shane. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's been going on? Um, I became a participant in Take Back the City around the time of the establishment of the Frederick Street occupation. So. I think maybe just some significant points uh, or observations I think um, would follow. Look, take back the city, um, the occupations, the actions, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, like, like rec recognised by the participants themselves, it is inherently anti-capitalist because going into a property and having a court order injunction served um, and to defy that you're defying the law <laughs> that upholds private property the right for landlords to uh, basically have uh, property uh, and prioritize their rights to own and hoard and to speculate uh, that comes before human need you know so i think that the occupations show something inherently anti-capitalist and a lot of people will be anti-capitalist and socialist involved in Take Back the City uh, but then it's also an opportunity 
uh, for people or there has been a politicization and a radicalization of some people because you know when people saw the actions of the Holy Trinity, with the Holy Trinity being the landlord getting down the private security thugs aided by the Guardi uh, to uh, attack a load of young activists, genuine activists, uh, people who would have been involved in the repeal movement and so on, and genuine housing activists wanted to highlight this uh, and wanted to actually show that direct act- action is necessary, that when or like just working class youngsters and students saw this and that's they were indignified they came out onto the streets uh, because they recognized that this was just so fundamentally fundamentally wrong and uh, just a point about uh, how quickly people responded so today uh, or the evening that people were attacked by the private security actually a socialist party comrade was one of them Andrew Um, but the evening that happened uh, it was discussed that there would be an event the next day at Frederick Street outside like uh, a 24 hour protest but it wasn't actually arranged until the next day at 11am so with 6 hours notice the protest began at Frederick Street at five o'clock I think and you had a thousand people spontaneously impromptu coming uh, and all the notification that they had came from Facebook and that just really shows the degree of rage and anger at the by like felt by the layer who protested at the actions of the Guardi the landlord and the private security companies and I think some points about um, some other points about Take Back the City that are striking and should be noted is the way that the media responded and I have uh, a bone to pick with Niall Boylan <laughs> as many uh, as many people do join the, club. <laughs> join the club justifiably so so I recollect a few days after our friends got uh, beat up uh, Niall Boylan uh, was on the radio and he was um pushing this moral panic you know if this happens what's next like is my holiday home in Le Hinch going to be under attack and so on and we have to pose it in this way the owners of the property of Frederick Street uh, they're a family um, uh, like a family conglomerate and they have over 40 properties between them the Frederick Street house three or four stories um, was unoccupied for three years so they were just sitting on this property not doing anything but waiting for the value of it to go up to speculate to sell whatever to hoard but they were not using it so Tenniel Boylan and the media pundits uh, of the rich uh, and the landlord elite I'd like to put it to put this to that class well what should come first human need or the right for a few rich gone beans to profit here or rich international capitalists to profit here um, so um, flowing from there maybe if someone wants to come in um, Katja you want to say a few words about no I think take back the city and their actions have been a real inspiration I was uh, there that day um, that we sat down on O'Connell Street and uh, I thought it was in ta- in a, extremely uh, inspiring but interesting as well to see um so many people there who at the same time were wearing the you know the badges and so on from the last battle we were involved in repeal and so on you know and just to come back to that earlier point in terms of like the entire working class being affected by this every you know yes young people to the fore but i think we potentially have a really um potent mix here of of Mm -hmm. the potential for huge solidarity um across all generations of unity of uh, working class people being affected in different ways um, and I think we need to take into account that this comes off the back of, of a water charges battle that was won by working class action by a combination of direct action and then you know powerful mobilizations national mobilizations mobilizations right across the country that pushed the government uh, back and on the back of, of, of the, the repeal battle which it, Similarly, at big mobilizations, but at also huge 
um, grassroots movement of you know people talking to each other, convincing uh, the, the, their parents, their friends, and so on to uh, to get engaged in this uh, in in this struggle. And I think there's the potential for something similar to develop around housing, a combination of direct action, sharp points, exposing the nature of the of, of the, the profiteering around housing uh, and so on combining that with you know s- uh, serious mobilizations um, I think it's really really good that the national um, homeless and housing coalition has uh, called for a demonstration on the 1st of December following on from the one on the 3rd of October um, I think that's you know the next step that is really really needed um, I really hope that trade unions will come on board and support this you know, and not just in words, but also in action. Um, but also that the trade union movement starts to take on board how, what is needed next, you know, the, the, just the depth of this crisis and that it needs a really, really strong response. And if there was leadership shown, I think the idea of workers' action around this, um, the idea of strike action around this, you know, of, of, of people taking, you know, uh, strike action or, uh, around the issue of housing, spe- housing specifically is entirely possible mm-hmm. if you give people a realistic program to work around, you know, and by realistic I mean actually something that is going to solve the crisis, not realism in the sense of Fine Gael who come up with tiny, tiny solutions. We've built another 60 social houses this year kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, uh, I'd just like to pick up on uh, Katia's point there. Uh, the word potential has been mentioned quite a lot around the table. Um, and this movement has to reach out and develop its full potential. The example has been given of the anti-water charges movement. I mean, we had 100 to 150,000 people on the streets at any one day during the anti-water charges movement. The housing campaign has not reached that level, mm-hmm. has re- not reached anywhere near that level as yet. Uh, I hope it can do, and I think that it very well might. Right? But um, it's not just going to happen so December the 1st uh, is really important I think uh, every um, housing activist every left activist and crucially every young person who wants to stand up and be counted on this issue needs to not only be there but make this a job of work in the month of November Mm -hmm. to spread the word and to get as many people as possible along. I understand that the Socialist Party are doing days of action Mm -hmm. uh, every Saturday uh, in Dublin, in Cork, in the big cities around the country. And we'd appeal to people to come down and to assist us, uh, help to build uh, for that. A couple of ideas that Katya raised that I'd like to pick up on. Uh, One is um, the unions can play a really important role in this Um, but uh, I think that there are many trade union leaders who still hanker after social partnership Mm -hmm. uh, who hope that they can do a deal maybe not so much with Fine Gael but with Fianna Fáil maybe after the next election Mm -hmm. and who are nervous of the idea of 100,000 people on the streets confronting uh, governments Um, uh, I look more to the young people and the rank and file in the unions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the ranks of the unions, if you want to put, the, put it that way, need to have their voice heard now and um, campaign for the unions mm-hmm. to put the push on for the 1st of December uh, and to uh, really step up the fight coming into the new year. One idea that we would like to um, have discussed in the unions is the idea of, at some stage, maybe next year, uh, a national work stoppage on the issue of the housing crisis and demanding action uh, on it. I'm not sure if the mood is fully there at the moment, although I think some young people uh, and some more militant workers would be well up for it, but the crisis hasn't peaked. So what may be seen as a good demand, but not maybe immediately practical today, mm-hmm. could become a very popular demand tomorrow or the next day. So I think that idea needs to, to, to start being discussed. Finally, on the question of the colleges and the students, I would wonder if the mood isn't there already now at the moment mm-hmm. for national strike action. And uh, I think that um, maybe in the, within the UNIS Students of Ireland, it would be 
uh, useful if there was a discussion and a debate as to whether uh, naming a day in the new year for a national strike in every college, every university in the country, not to stay at home for the day, but to come in, mm-hmm. to protest at the campus, to follow the example of take back the city and take control uh, through occupations of key campus buildings, mm-hmm. ask for support from the lecturers, but not just the lecturers, the canteen staff, the cleaners, the porters, mm-hmm. and so on, and maybe even reach out to the likes of the PLCs, and who knows, maybe even the secondary schools to get involved in the action. Um, I strongly suspect that a, a bold call on that front could get a, a real response and lift the movement onto a higher level. But the immediate issue is December the 1st. Mm-hmm. And I think that the energies of all and sundry need to be put into making that the biggest success possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think maybe just the flow from that, that up until or shortly before repeal, there was this narrative that uh, young people in, in Ireland aren't willing to put up a fight uh, for anything but repeal smashed that obviously repeal saw a Herculean struggle like uh, on the streets uh, young people young women en masse getting organised to convince people um, t- to go out and to repeal the 8th amendment but also um like take back the city and Apollo House over the last few years have also punctured the idea that young people aren't willing to fight and I think that you're seeing in colleges now like Maynooth University for example that you're seeing housing action groups mm. pop up and that reflects that there has been a radicalisation and that it's young students saying that we have to take matters into our own hands and we actually have to on a grassroots level challenge landlords exploiting students so I commend them for that uh, and just I'm saying that point again just to re-emphasise that I think Mick's right there is a hunger there and I think students would be willing to engage in that level or degree of struggle um, I think maybe uh, uh, Katja wants to come in yeah I think that points around um, students young people taking action in. There, there's another aspect to this as mm-hmm. well I agree with the point that, that Mick made and I think there is actually a hankering for what is next you know mm-hmm. Um and maybe Ireland traditionally doesn't have that tradition of, of, of student strikes and so on. But I think one of the features of movements last number of years has been that there's, they have much more of an international character. You know, young people look not just to what's going on in their own, own country, but very actively look right across the globe and pick up tips and, 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 uh, and ideas from movements elsewhere. And there have been a number of, of, of impressive uh, mobilizations of, of, of students, um, not least in countries like Spain and so on around issues uh, of sexual violence and whatever else, but in, it just that have had a massive impact in society, you know, where literally millions of people have come out. And I think those kind of, in, uh, of, 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 of mobilizations are also an inspiration for students to see that this is possible around issues that direct, directly concern them, that the idea of, 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 of a student strike mm-hmm. uh, is something that is now on the cards more than it has been for a very long time, you know. It's in the context of a broad uh, politicization, uh, an openness to left ideas, to socialist ideas, uh, looking for alternatives and so on. Um, I think what we should discuss is, 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 for me, it's very important that when this movement is being built, that we resist any attempt to just stick to specific demands around people or in the rental sector or people, you know, who are homeless in the official Phoenix Hill sense of the word and so on, but that we actually build a movement that is united, you know, and a program key demands for that movement are very important to it's do that, issue. to bring people together, it's you know? key issue. Yes, and we haven't discussed that fully yet, so the we qu- should definitely... The question of programme is key, because uh, apart from anything else, um, a, a fighting, campaigning programme can act as a magnet which draws broader and broader layers of people into the movement. So let's kick... I, I want to kick-start the debate on this. Uh, I want, want to put it out there uh, about uh, issues that I would see as, as key issues uh, to project on. Um, the number one cause of homelessness is uh, evictions from the private rented sector. It is absolute insanity to allow landlords to continue to hand out notices to quit like confetti, uh, adding to the homeless numbers at the time of the biggest housing crisis in the history of the state. So I think a key central demand has to be a total ban on all economic evictions. Um, I think rent control is a phrase that is bandied about a lot, Mm -hmm. 
But I think you have to ask the question in the context of rents rising, you know, nearly 10% year on year, what does rent control mean? If you freeze the rents, you're just freezing rents that are already too high. Mm-hmm. I would argue that rent controls, if they're meaningful, have to mean real significant cuts, right, in the price of rent. I think that the idea of public housing on public demand is uh, public land is uh, a particularly important demand. Um, I'll quote Mel Reynolds again. Uh, he reckons that there's enough public land, you know, in the hands of NAMA and the councils alone to build 114,000 public homes. You'd solve the housing crisis effectively with that. Uh, what's a, a, a public home? For me, it's council houses, but it's not just council houses. It's also genuinely affordable homes. Mm-hmm. When the government talks about affordable housing, they mean the market price with 50 grand shaved off it. Right? In the big cities, that means more than 300,000 euro now. That is not an affordable home for young people coming out of college, working a couple of years, even for a worker on the average wage. A genuinely affordable home is a, a home that you can get a mortgage within three and a half times of your annual income. All right? And that can be done. Um, for example, 50% of the cost of a house comes from one of four things. It comes from the price of land, it comes from banker's profit, it comes from developer's profit, and it comes from taxes. So if the state is building public homes on public land, uh, the land can be given for free, the state can waive the taxes, um, banker's profit, the state can borrow for 1%. It's much higher for a private developer because of the risk factor of going belly up. Um, developer profit, well, if the state had their own construction company, it wouldn't cost, mm-hmm. but that's maybe something that's difficult to pull together in the immediate short term. Mm-hmm. So you could hire a builder to do the job, but you dictate the price, right? So you make big savings there. So houses that are on the market for 350,000 can be delivered by the state if it's public housing on public land for half that price, well under 200,000 euro. And that's what needs to be done. The final point that I'd raise, I won't develop this point, but it's something that we might pick up on, is the question of um, nationalization, Mm -hmm. right? Because actually, take back the city, right? Have put the question of nationalization onto the agenda. They've said that a vacant property owned by a big landlord that's been left idle for a year, that the councils should have the power to compulsory purchase it, Mm -hmm. right? What is that if it isn't a form of nationalization, all right? Now, I have an issue with um, compulsory purchase because it it, 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 it it means market rates, which is top dollar, all right? And I'm not in favor of giving top dollar to landlords and speculators, okay? Um, so I, I think compulsory acquisition. Mm-hmm. Okay, if there's a pension fund, has shares in some company, I compensate 100% compensation on the basis of proven need but we got to look at um, the developers who are hoarding land we got to look at the speculators who are hoarding properties uh, we've got to look at um, 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 the developers who are effectively going on a strike of capital and refusing to invest because they think they'll make more money uh, tomorrow the resources that are controlled there the idea of public ownership, is that a crazy idea? No, it's not. It makes absolute sense. And that needs to be part of the debate and the discussion as well. But maybe we'll come back to that mm-hmm. in a minute. I just, uh, for me, all of these make sense, right? But if you had to highlight one and really, really put central, you know, if you had to make a poster, the one I would make is around public homes on public land. Yeah. And really fleshing, flushing that, fleshing that out in terms of what that actually would mean. Because 114,000 homes being built and what the difference would be in, in local communities, what it would mean in terms of the housing market and so on, you know. Uh, and I think that's actually quite concrete because that land is now currently being sold off by councils right across the country. There was an example a few weeks ago in the, the South Dublin County Council, Kilcarbury being sold off 
to be developed by by uh, private privateers and maybe 30% of it come back to the council or some percentage like that rather than it actually being used for social and affordable housing and I think making that link between that general demand and actually concretely this is we're not just saying this in an abstract way. We mean no more, no more of this selling of, of land. Mm-hmm. Not a council in the country can get away in this current crisis to sell off uh, a public land for for private profit. That that would really uh, be something that people will uh, will will uh, mobilize around, especially if we can make that concrete, right? Um, Solidarity has developed a number of local plans as examples of what could be done, done on public land, of developing new communities, you know, integrating crashes, schools, community facilities and so on. A quality of, li- of, of life uh, if you move into a community like that is a bit of a mixture of social and affordable housing. Uh, and therefore, actually, given a real face to what you're talking about, what this could look like, what you could, what you're talking about when you talk about building public homes today, but also just think about the impact it would have if you had that type of a decisive state intervention mm-hmm. into the housing supply. You know, you would actually wrangle control from those private profit profiteers that we've just been going on and on about that have complete control over the market now that can set the prices themselves with the help of the government and so on. And what you need is a decisive state intervention uh, to change that. Just a point I, I want to make about this, right? Because I need to, I think more and more so that people also see that we need to link this with, yes, we need to build public homes, but we need to build them in, in through a publicly owned company. That this idea of, of these private um, um, construction companies coming in um, and the, the type of work they pro- uh, produce is more and more put in, uh, in question, you know. Um, look at what happened in the last few weeks around uh, Western building systems, the 42 schools mm-hmm. that are unsafe for children to be taught in, you know, that, that don't pass fire regulations, that don't pass health and safety regulations. That company was picked because it was 30% cheaper than anybody else, right? A few years ago, that would have been sold as good value for money. You know, I think people are starting to see through this, that good val- this is not good value for money. You, you know, what, what you get is cutting of corners, bottom feeders being given huge amounts of state money to build subpar, in this case, educational accommodation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is suffering from it are our children who are put at risk, literally put at risk, uh, uh, putting their lives put, being put at risk. But similarly, so if you want to build good quality public housing, public homes, that the cheapest way to do that, but also the only way you can actually have democratic control over the type of community that is being built, is if it's built through a, through a publicly owned company, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and and the last point about this is that you would also have control over the working conditions of the workers in yeah. there. The construction com- uh, industry is notorious, absolutely notorious for bogus self-employment, for agency work, for horrendous exploitation of their workers, right? Mm-hmm. And again, how would you intervene into that if you had a public house building company? They would have plenty to do here in Ireland, you know. You would have apprenticeships again. You would have proper training of people, decent rates and uh, of pay being set and so on as a standard right across the, the industry, you know. So I think some of those th- things are much more popular now than they would have been a few years ago. I think people are seeing through the bluster of, oh, private is cheaper or something like yeah, that. You know, I, we've had so many scandals exposing that that is not the I case. Agree. I agree. I think public housing on public land is is really key central demand I, I just want to track back to um, a point about um, building a movement and drawing in the broadest layers because we, we've spoken about workers we've spoken about women mm-hmm. we've spoken about uh, students and young people and these are all key core components of building a movement obviously mm-hmm. if, if the unions were to really come out fighting Uh, on these issues that would be a powerful assist Um, but there are other groups within society who are we might say minority groups who are particularly exploited and get a raw deal who need to be drawn into the movement as well I just want to make a point uh, about this one thing that I noticed on October the 3rd as I was walking around in Molesworth Street there looking at the crowd um, I saw a significant number of travelling people there and I saw a significant number of immigrants there including mm-hmm. people of colour and it really struck me when I heard the um, hateful divisive comments 
uh, of Peter Casey. Um, that actually, if we build a powerful, strong housing protest movement from below, that it will actually unite all exploited groups in society uh, in in unity against the government rather than that kind of division, right? Mm-hmm. But we need to uh, put on the banner of a movement um, the demands and the issues that face these groups as well. Mm-hmm. For example, I was at a meeting of the um, the Iroctus Housing Committee today, the things I do. Uh, it's uh, sacrificing my career. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but th- there was um, a woman at the meeting who made a really interesting point. You know the the way that when K- uh, Casey was kicking up, he was talking about the traveller accommodation programme in Tipperary? Mm. Well, here's a, an interesting fact for you. Tipperary County Council has 4.7 million euro that's been allocated to it for purposes of building traveller accommodation since the year 2000, which has been completely unused. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we need to do is we need to take the monies that have been allocated for traveller accommodation, top up on top of them if necessary, and I think that probably is necessary, and then that money is spent right, on providing for uh, the accommodation needs uh, of travellers, including young travellers, and in particular sorting out the issues of uh, overcrowding. And I think in terms of... Um, the immigrant population, including asylum seekers, uh, we need to address the issue of these direct provision centres. Mm-hmm. The direct provision centres of 2018 are the equivalent of the Magdalene Laundries of the 40s, the 50s and 60s, people being effectively imprisoned within them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the effect that it's having on mental health, including the mental health of young people and children. And I think the idea of houses for all is a demand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the two biggest obstacles that have stood in the way of building a housing movement? Well, I won't say the two biggest, but two of the biggest, right? One has been a feeling on the part of people that were powerless. It's been the idea of it's too big of an issue. You're never going to challenge them on that. But as the movement emerges, it's beginning to dispel those doubts yep. and more and more people are becoming believers. The other one is the issue of um, seeing other ordinary people as competitors. I mean, how many times have we heard it? You know, uh, my daughter's on the housing list. Uh, she should get the house ahead of the Polish people. We should look after our own first. Uh, this type of an argument. All right. Um, so I, th- I think a key thing is that instead of feeling that there's some group coming from the outside who's going to take a scarce limited resources from you or the other way around, the idea that all ordinary people, all working class people, whether you're born in, you know, Drimna or Grana Brocher, <laughs> right? Or in Lagos, Nigeria or Gdansk in Poland, right? That you say, we are working class people, we are united and we are fighting for housing for all. That's an important part of what this movement needs to be about too. Mm-hmm. And maybe just one uh, relevant thing about Casey. Uh, for a man who hasn't paid any tax in Ireland for a very, very long time, he's got some neck uh, to come down uh, against groups who have been horribly marginalised. And just one quick point in relation to the oppression of travellers. It's not too long ago that I think nine travellers died due to state neglect and negligence in Carrick Mines and for him to have the audacity to try and stir the pot and to whip up flames of just hatred against travellers is, is it it's dangerous you know and he needs to be taken to, ta- to task for it but I think that what Mick's putting forward is that ultimately there needs to be a politics of people power but workers workers power connected with oppressed groups and the politics of the vision offered by uh, 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 charlatans and fools like Casey don't offer any alternative for working class people Um, so what I might do now is I might just ask Mick and Katja for some final comments I might bring Mick in first and then Katja my final comment is about socialism Right. Um, I was doing a bit of reading uh, during the week in preparation for a pamphlet which I'm writing uh, on this issue at the moment um, 
and I read about Vienna mm-hmm. in Austria. Um, I didn't know this, um, but at the end of the First World War, uh, with a revolution in Germany, a revolution in Hungary, and uh, the collapse of the monarchy in Austria, um, a social democrat council came to power. Right? Um, now, their attitude was reform capitalism from above in order to prevent revolution from below, but the working class base forced them to go a lot further than they would have wanted. One of the reforms that they brought in was on the issue of housing. They built 250,000 apartments for workers. Um, the leases were for life. Uh, wait till you hear this. The rents were maximum 4% of your weekly income. Right? There was uh, communal kitchens, communal laundry facilities, childcare, medical care. If you were sick, you didn't have to pay rent. If you were unemployed, you didn't have to pay rent. When the Nazis took over, right? Mm-hmm. they didn't dismantle this. It was too popular. Right? It was only when the Berlin Wall came down and the financial markets got ahead of themselves with the commodification of housing, mm-hmm. neoliberal capitalism got their claws into it, that it began to be undermined. They deregulated the rents. The rent shot up after 2007. They brought in three-year leases and five-year leases. To this day, Vienna is one of the few capitals in, in Europe that hasn't privatized the majority of a social housing stock because they have to go slowly about clawing it back. Now, people might say, what has this got to do with anything in Ireland? But what I draw from that is two things. Number one, that real progress and genuine reform on housing depends on how hard people fight for it and struggle. But second of all, the gains of the past, right? The, the progress that has been made is actually undermined and clawed back by the markets, big business, by capitalism. If you want to hold on to those things and defend them, you have to link it to a struggle to change society. That's a struggle for a socialist society. Bring it in into its Irish context. What could we do if we had not just a left government with socialist policies that banned economic evictions, genuinely controlled rent, built public housing on public land, but set up a straight construction company that nationalised the land that's held by the land hoarders, that nationalised um, the likes of IRS REIT mm-hmm. uh, and the big uh, corporate landlords, uh, and that said, okay, instead of the crazy logic of capitalism, putting the market above the needs of the 99%, we'll have a sane, rational, democratic, socialist plan. How many building workers do we have? How many do we have to train? How many do we have to bring in from abroad? How much land do we control? We control the building industry. Now, let's draw up a plan. Next five years, how many houses do we need? How many apartments do we need? How many schools? How many youth facilities? And so on and so forth. And then working people, students, renters, mortgage holders, you know, trade unionists, coming together and saying, okay, we're going to be democratically involved in drawing up and implementing that plan, a plan for the needs of the 99%, not the greed of the 1%. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's what we need to do. I think that's exactly the type of powerful vision that can give people the confidence to say, actually, what we're presented with now as the only way it's not the only way. There is an alternative, you know, and a well-worked-out alternative. And I think the points I make made around what is a socialist vision for housing are, are crucial to all this. Because what we're sold today is that idea of, of, of the neoliberal vision of housing, you know, which is essentially pauperization, uh, commodi- commodification of housing for profit. Mm-hmm. That That is what it most of all uh, accounts. And what you're left with is modern-day tenements in the inner city hand in hand with gentrification and the idea that if, if you you know if if you as a working class person want to find anywhere to live that you're either stick stuck somewhere far away inaccessible away from public transport and so on and so forth or in in, in a modern day tenement um, and I think you can see that in Dublin you can see it internationally we mentioned earlier Tokyo Paris and so on and it is sold as the only alternative but actually there is so many, um, so much more that can be done, and the resources are there. Mm-hmm. You are talking about three billion a year over five years would build 
the 114,000 homes we were talking about uh, earlier, that is not an insurmountable amount of money uh, to be put together. And you would completely transform um, um, how you would organize the, the construction industry and so on and so forth, you know. But I think make made the, the point much more uh, developed than, than I really want to do now because I think the other point is how do we get there, mm-hmm. you know. Because what you're talking about is taking on the vested interests, political and economically, you know, you're talking about people who make a lot of money out of this and they're not just going to go, oh, your idea is better. Let's go for that, you know. But we've done this before. We know that water charges was based on private profit trying to commodify water, right? Mm-hmm. We fought it and we won. You know, we have pushed this government back on a number of issues now, socially and economically. And if we build a similar powerful movement um, along the lines of what we outlined earlier that unites around an alternative vision, I think we can win, right? But that's why the 1st of December is an important next step of mobilizing all those different sections affected by, by, the, by the housing crisis and starting to build a real united movement that, uh, that unites around the program of public homes on public lands. Okay, finally, just a call out for the December the 1st March. Um, go on to the Facebook page. It's organised by the National Homeless and Housing Coalition. It's going to begin at 2pm at the Garden of Remembrance. Um, so check that out. Make sure to attend. And this is a, this is a podcast organised by the Socialist Party, as outlined at the beginning and throughout. If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved, contact us on Facebook. And yeah, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Hopefully it will be the first of many. Have a good evening. Sloan.